Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode one of The Well. Thank you so much for tuning in. As I mentioned in the trailer for the show, I intend to occasionally speak to people outside the world of sport, and I figured we'd do that here to kick things off in episode one. Today, you'll hear my conversation with an old friend and colleague of mine, a master sommelier named Carlton McCoy. While you may have never heard of Carlton, he's actually a big deal in the world of food and beverage, and we used to work together at the Little Nell Hotel in Aspen, Colorado. We recorded this conversation in April of this year on one of his last days at the hotel before he left to take over as the president and CEO of Heights Cellars, one of the most respected wineries in Napa Valley. In this conversation, we talk about his non-traditional upbringing in the wine business, the parallels between the training and competing that I do versus what he's experienced in his own professional life. We talk about the concept of training partners, mentorship, and skill development that led him to pass the notoriously difficult Master Sommelier exam at the ripe young age of 28 years old. By doing so, Carlton became the second youngest person and second African-American to ever earn the master distinction, landing him in an exclusive group of only 245 people worldwide. Carlton is a man of exceptional intelligence and charisma, which makes him great at his job and also a person who's just great to chat with. And I think you'll find he has a lot of interesting things to say. I hope you all enjoy our conversation. I'm here with my old friend and colleague, the wine director at the Little Nell Hotel in Aspen, Colorado, Mr. Carlton McCoy. Carlton, thanks for sitting down with me. It's my pleasure. It gives me a reason to sit down. One of your last days here at the Little Nell, end of an era. I'm almost going to get emotional. <laughs> um, cool. we, were, we were just as emotional when you left, by the way. Oh, that makes me feel It was great. a big deal. That makes it was me a big deal. Um, so, you know, I don't want to spend too much time on background just in the sure. interest of time, but obviously you want to get a little bit of bio- biographical context for you. I know you grew up in D.C., uh-huh. right? So maybe start with um, sort of like what your childhood was like and then sure. um, when you sort of got the itch to get into food and beverage and, yeah. and what motivated that. Um, so uh, like I said, I'm, I'm originally from Washington, D.C. Um, you know, I grew up, in, I was born in 84, so I was growing up in probably what was the worst time in Washington, D.C. ever. Um, at the time it was... Um, you know, the murder capital of the world per capita. It was really funny. So Dave Chappelle is also from Washington, D.C., and he does one of his stand-ups when he talks about, you know, growing up in Washington, D.C., he left to live with his dad in Ohio and came back, and he said, he goes, the crack bomb went off. And he's like, there's all these zombies walking around. He's like, it was wild. <laughs> you know, he's like, you know, he left. Um, and, you know, D.C. was a hub for this really powerful, like, forward-thinking African-American movement. For many years, I mean, these really strong black communities, people with great government jobs and people going to college and things like that. And then drugs hit the community and it all went away within like five years. And he came back and he's like, what happened? You know, and that's when I was growing up. Wow. Um, so I grew up in that. And um, but, f- you know, when you grow up in those sub environments, you know, you have a few comforts that are pretty consistent, not just in, in impoverished communities in America, but all around the world, which is food is a big part of that. Um, you know, uh, humor is a big part of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, things like that that sort of comfort you when you know like shit's pretty tough. Um, and um, we, so cooking became a big part of our lives. Even if you were a male, everyone cooked, males mm-hmm. and females. Um, so that was a big part of what we did was these long drawn out, you know, we would take days to cook meals and eat. And that was uh, what I grew up doing. And I became very passionate about that ability to sort of come around a table and you know, time stood still and it was all about nothing else mattered what was going on in the world except for what was going on that table. And we would eat and drink and laugh for 
you know, until the morning, right? Just you and your family and your yeah, community? Yeah, I had this massive family. My great-grandmother had uh, 16 children. Um, so as that trickled down, everyone has three to five kids. You know, we were an entire neighborhood. <laughs> My family's know? like that, too. It was insane. Yeah. So, you know, at any time you'd be walking down the street and you'd run into, you know, 10, 15 cousins. Mm -hmm. You know, they were just, it was a normal thing. Your friends were your family. We didn't mm -hmm. really need friends outside of the family. And when we didn't. I don't have a single friend from my childhood that wasn't my family. Really? Wow. Yeah, we all went to school together, everything. It was really odd, but it was sort of like what we grew up in. Mm -hmm. So for, for us, you know, food was was like our livelihood. Mm -hmm. uh, it was more more than just about nourishment. It was like what we did. And then you ended up getting a scholarship to the Culinary Institute of America, uh -huh. right, in upstate New York. Yeah, so I didn't know um, that you could actually make money doing what we were just doing as a hobby. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't know what a chef was. Um, you know, even though we had been in restaurants, I didn't think about like that as a career. Um, and then when I when I uh, I took a, a culinary arts class in um, in in high school, they didn't call it that. It was like a home ec sort of thing. And um, I realized that I <laughs> yeah home yeah, ec yeah, is yeah, different no one has than culinary arts. Yeah, yeah, they're very different. But I realized that like all these things they were teaching, I already knew how to do. And you know, I was the one making fun of everyone else because they didn't know how to make an omelet, they didn't know how to scramble an egg, they didn't know how to roast the chicken. All the stuff I've been doing since I was a kid. And the teacher sort of came and said, you know, this is really abnormal for um, a 15-year-old to know how to do all this stuff, you know? As well, it's, you know, it's what I know how to do. So she had heard of this program that was based out of New York called the Careers Through Culinary Arts Program. And it was started by this Jewish family, the Grausmans. And he got really into culinary arts in the 70s and 80s, working with um, people like Julia Childs and so forth and um, and Craig Claiborne. And he went to the Cordon Bleu in, in Paris, and that became his passion. He was a trust fund kid. And, um, did really well for himself and decided to take his money and invest it in the community, which is, you know, unheard of in, 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 in a lot of those families. Mm -hmm. And um, so he, they signed me up for that program. Uh, long story short, I went through a, a series of cooking competitions, won the grand prize, which is a full ride to um, the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park, which sort of sort of changed the course what of my life. What a great story. Yeah, it was pretty random, actually. It, it happened so fast. Huh. You know? Well, that's really interesting, and it, it's uh, it parallels a lot of the questions that I want to ask you in terms of approaching food and beverage almost like competition. Obviously, uh, having the credential you do now as a master som, you know the training that goes into that, and so it's a it's a funny story to hear, having not heard that before. That it was a competition that actually got you that yeah that spot at CIA um, back in your in your younger days. But I think also, and you've sort of alluded to this. Um, you were more interested in sort of like the chef trajectory, right? So yeah. when was it that your ambitions and your interests shifted from back of the house to the front of the house? Um, so, so when I was in culinary school, I took it very seriously. It was sort of the only, I was the only one of my uh, brothers and sisters that, that went to college. Um, and it was sort of like my chance out. And I knew that and I took it very seriously. Um, and uh, for many years, no one in my family actually knew what I, I did for a living because they also still couldn't, Fathom that you could make a career out of cooking, mm -hmm. um, and the fact that I was at the most uh, the most elite culinary school in the world, you know, excelling. There was like they were flabbergasted. They they fully didn't understand. They, they were supportive but didn't understand. Mm -hmm. um, so I specialized in classic French cuisine, and I took it very serious. And I started to travel to learn more. And um, after I graduated, I moved to New York. And what I realized very quickly in New York was um, that all the great restaurants in New York they didn't pay. Mm -hmm. So you had to work for free, which I didn't come from money. I had no no monetary support. So and you're living in the most expensive city in the world. Yeah, exactly. And you know, what we did was we were, um, I went out and I, I took the money I had and I got an apartment with my buddy. Um, and we were both cooks at the time and he was cooking for Tom Colicchio at Kraft. 
And I, um, I was still what they call staging around, which is you essentially work for free to figure out where you want to work, hoping that you'll get a paid position, which is really unlikely with no experience. So I worked at John George, I worked at Danielle, I worked at Lund Ducasse and all these places, and I didn't get a paid position. So I, there's something I had to do. I said, you know, I had $300. At that point, I was, um, I was trying to eat at work, so I didn't have to pay for food. But on my days off, I would eat like tuna fish sandwiches on mm -hmm. white bread. This is all I could afford to eat. Wow. Um, <laughs> that's what I would eat. And I, would, I couldn't go anywhere. And I was living in New York City. I didn't have any money to do anything. So I would yeah. just walk around New York. Can't even take the subway. It. No, I would walk around. <laughs> I would walk. Dude, I would walk up and down Manhattan. It was insane. And just eat tuna fish sandwiches. And I was like, I can't. I didn't, go, I didn't get a bachelor's degree in hospitality to yeah. live like this. Right. Like, I'm, I'm poorer now than I was with my family. Right. You know? Um, so I made, I made the decision to, to take a job as a server to make money until I can hold myself over and find a paid position. Um, and uh, you know, I did it and, and what I realized was that my that, that passion for being around food and beverage and that environment was actually even more fulfilled in the front of the house than in the back because what I got in the front that I was missing in the back was the interaction with people. Mm -hmm. And you know, what I always loved about you know, food and cooking when I was a kid was the interaction with people. And so it's sort of like, you know, I, I went and I just never looked back. Um, and what I realized as well was that if you're in the dining room, I realized very quickly that you can only make so much money selling steaks. You know, the most expensive steak here sells $100, but people were buying $1,000 bottles of wine. Mm -hmm. So it was, if you really wanted to make it in this career, if you wanted to go get into management and things like that, you had to learn about beverage. Mm -hmm. So I started learning about spirits and beer because it's the easiest topic. And then I started, and then, and then it became wine, which I was always terrified of. Mm -hmm. I took a, a wine course in college, um, but very basic. And, um, and it was a completely different world for me. I was really out of my element. I, no one in my family ever drank wine. And I was in a class with these people who came from really well-off families. And, you know, they knew what a Pinot Noir was. They knew what a Chardonnay. I didn't know what the words meant. Um, so I was really at a disadvantage. And um, so I started to study. And, um, but it was hard because I was working so much and didn't have time. Uh, and then finally, I moved to D.C. Um, to uh, open a restaurant with Eric Ziebold, who was the chef of the French Laundry for a number of years. And I started again from a very basic position. But what they had there was a wine director who was an incredible teacher, uh, Andy Myers. Mm. Uh, he was this former uh, death metal drummer. Um, badass, badass dude. Covered his entire body from his, his neck. Um, all the way down to his wrist, his ankle, covered in tattoos, his entire body. You would never know because you can't see it through the suit, he's right? he's a wine guy. And he's a wine guy. And he was studying for this thing called the Master Sommelier Exam. Um, and that's sort of how I got to that trajectory. So that's really interesting. So when was it then that you decided that you wanted to become a master? Because in my life, looking yeah. back, I can identify the moment where I was like, learned about the Leadville 100 and I was like, this is what I want to do sure. with my life. Was there a yeah. moment like that for you? And uh, yeah, what do you I remember think, about that um, time? Well, I, so I, I, you know, I didn't know what a master sommelier was. And, um, um, when I, when I first started at cities in, uh, Andy was the wine director and, you know, he was, I'd always see him studying and things like that. I didn't know, you know, he was, he, Andy was a very old school restaurant guy. His belief was, he wouldn't talk to you until you were there for six months because if not, he, he wouldn't remember your name or anything because it wasn't w worth his time. He, he says, so I've been turnover, yeah. yeah, he's like, I've been in the restaurant industry for 30 years. He's like, you know, you know, since I was a kid, he's like, you know how many employees have gone through? He's like, I'm not even gonna, he doesn't talk to you. He doesn't acknowledge you until you've been there for six months. And at around the six month, you know, point, <laughs> he actually used my name for the first time. And I was like, like, well, the guy knows my name. Yeah. I was like, okay, this is a good sign. And he asked me if I wanted to come to a tasting. And... I didn't know what that was. Like you just sit around drinking wine. I mean, 
we take for granted that people understand what this thing is. Yeah. And it was a blind tasting, which I thought was a complete hat trick. Yeah. And it was at one o'clock in the morning after Saturday night service. <laughs> you know, so so I said, okay, whatever. We finished service, the restaurants clean, lights go up, and then there was like six guys at, at, at the bar with glasses there, blind tasting. I go, I was like, holy shit, like what is this? And they're there till three o'clock in the morning. Talk yeah. about commitment, dude. Yeah. You just worked a 12 hour shift and another two hours of blind tasting practice yeah. at one o'clock in the morning. And I don't know, there was something about it. I, I started to, um, I was really attracted to that level of like Hard commitment and intensity. And, yeah. uh, and I was like, wow, like what, what are they doing? So I started the conversation of what is a master's lawyer? And we started talking and I just thought, what an incredible thing. Uh, I mean, I look back and I'm like, how foolish of me to think like, okay, I can do that. And I never hesitated. There was never a yeah. moment of like me thinking like, um, I could never do this. I was just like, you know what? I, what's the worst going to happen? Like, I, what's my other option? What, yeah. stay as a server? You so, know? so sort of from that first tasting, yeah. you sort of had the ambition to, to continue on with that. And Yeah, I was, and I was really attracted to it, the energy of it and the intensity. Yeah. If you ever watch someone blind taste, a flight of wines for the master's exam. It's very focused and very intense. Yeah. And I don't know, the energy of it like really excited me. Mm. Um, cool. Well, before we go into yeah. more about like the training and the sure. tasting and the yeah. studying uh, that's so necessary for what you do, why don't you first like define what it means to be a master sommelier? Like what are the skills that you have to have and what's the process to, to get to that credential? Sure. Um, so there, there are three disciplines. Um, there is uh, the theoretical, which is essentially just, you know, as a self-explanatory, it's it's a theory of wine. It's the book knowledge. It's it's the hours of studying, memorizing facts and geology and so forth and yada yada and everything Regions else. Regions and exactly. varietals. Uh, there's and service. So that's understanding uh, very high-end, very classic, old-school um, proper wine service, spirit service, um, cocktail service. And then the last is blind tasting. So being able to essentially pick up a, a glass of wine and, and being able to analyze it and um, have an idea of uh, the vintage, the varietal, which is, which is the grape, um, the region, and the quality level. Um, those are the three disciplines that you essentially have to master mm -hmm. uh, to a certain percentage. And is it fair to say that the tasting is what people have the hardest time with? Like that's Sure, sure, sure. You know, I, I think that most people who are, um, you know, if, you, if you're going to, you know, starting to this endeavor, you 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 got to be a fairly intelligent person to begin with. Right. Um, so the theory, you have to be able to memorize stuff in, in an ungodly recognize amount of patterns. The service, it's kind of performance art, but then the tasting, it's, it's you can't. Performance you art can't really it's understanding how to that's that goes into now emotional intelligence as well. It's it's mm. physical technical skills of understanding the mechanics, and you, you really is there's uh, they, they grade you on it as well as your your poise and your finesse at the table. Um, you know, being a master sommelier is someone who puts someone at ease and, and you feel like you're being well taken care of. It's a, it's an art. Yeah. Um, and then there's obviously, you know, the uh, emotional intelligence of being able to read people, um, you know, looking at the guests and being able to read them what their needs are, anticipating needs. That's what they're all testing. And mm -hmm. then also, you know, they're testing your, um, your, your producer knowledge. You know, do you understand why certain vintages are certain ways and why they would pair with certain foods or mm. understanding, you know, who made what cuvee and what years and why that cuvee was made and things like that. Your your knowledge of, of producers and things like that all around the world. Mm -hmm. um, and then obviously the blind tasting is probably the, the toughest part because you really can't, 
You know, you have to have the, the big argument is is it is it nature or nurture, right? Yeah. Uh, with blind tasting, is it something you can fully train for? Do you have to have some sort of um, does that side of your brain have to be a little more more uh, engaged? Um, and I don't know if anyone's fully answered that question, um, but I you know I like to believe it's a, com- a combination mm-hmm. of the two. Um, and it just takes a lot of practice. I'm an sure. enormous amount of practice, a lot of focus. Um, yeah. So, how many master sommeliers are there in the U.S. and and worldwide at this uh, point? So, um, internationally, it is about two hundred and forty-five um, so ever so since the organization started. That's a that's a very small percent yeah. of the population. Yeah. <laughs> and you got you passed your exam when you were what, like twenty nine? I was twenty eight. Twenty eight. Yeah. So and that was that's pretty young, right? Or is yeah, that I was the uh, I think I was the second youngest in the world to pass. I think ever. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah, it was nuts. Cool. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a that's a good segue now that we've sort of like established that you're highly and uniquely <laughs> talented human being my with a with a highly sought after and respected uh, credential by your name. I want to talk about sort of like how you got to that point. And I think the reason I'm so interested in talking to you about this is because I see a big parallel between what you do and, and what I do, sure. and and in sport in general. Um, so like when you decided that you wanted to devote your career towards this, did you have a, an idea of like what the process was going to look like and, and what steps did you take early that looking back now you think really contributed to helping you be ultimately successful in, in earning that, uh, master badge? So as far as, is is you know, what it took, um, you know, what, what I did was obviously, um, I was really fortunate early on uh, when I was in DC to, to see um, uh, other people and what they were going through. Um, so my tasting group, I was by far the youngest guy. Um, so I, you know, I saw what the lifestyle was and what everyone else was doing that was, um, that were sort of aspiring to, to make it through this exam. Um, so I somewhat had an idea um, of, of really what it took. Everyone's journey is different. Everyone's life is different. Um, you know, everyone's level of intelligence is different, but it requires, so everyone, it's, 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 it's uniquely your journey to that sort of that, that red pen, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, but you sort of get an idea. And, and I think from the beginning, what, what helped me to be more successful was I made a decision very on early on. And I recognized that there were going to have to be major sacrifices that, um, you know, I, I, I was not going to be able to have hobbies outside of what I was doing, like zero. Uh, there was no, there was no free time. Because you're working also in the exactly. restaurant I'm while you're also, working. Tra- also studying. Um, and um, I keep wanting to say training, but I should say studying. So we, we call it training. Oh, you is know? that right? We do. We oh, call it cool. training. Yeah, we call it training for the masses. <laughs> See, it's, a, it's yeah. a perfect parallel. Yeah, and it really is. And, um, you know, um, so you're working in the restaurant like what 40 50 hours a week and then how how much are you studying? We would so so this is my routine. Uh, I would wake up in the morning, um, have a cup of coffee, have breakfast and go straight to there was a Starbucks across the street from the Mandarin Oriental where I was working. And I would get up, I would shower, shave uh, in it, DC was always humid as hell, so I never wore my work clothes to work. I would come with a garment bag and a huge duffel. This is before a lot of wine information was online. Mm-hmm. So I had a huge duffel bag with like 10 books, books. in it and no, all my notebooks. So I'd go to the Starbucks and I was set at the same table for almost four years, like every morning. And I would go in and I would sit there all day. Uh, and back then, you know, I was incredibly unhealthy. Yeah. 
I'd never worked out in my life and I smoked cigarettes. So I would, I would wake up in the morning and I would um, get shower, get dressed, load up my, my duffel bag, my clothes, and we'll go straight to the, I was at Starbucks by 10 a.m. And I went to work at 2 p.m. So I would, work, I would study for four hours every morning. And I would, um, I would study a region and I would go for about an hour and then I would walk around outside of Starbucks, chain smoking cigarettes, like stressed out, and then sit back down in another hour and then go out and smoke and then sit down another hour. And I would just like this and I was reciting things and just going. And it would so go you're for pacing around sort of like front of the trying Starbucks. to memorize things? And the whole staff knew me. Yeah. And they knew it was my table. And I, I don't know if they ever reserved it for me, but no one ever sat at the table. It was always me. And this is a busy city, but the table was always available. So I'm guessing they just, and I always tipped them well and I took care of them, but I did that. And then I would go to work because I was also running the cheese program. We have a cheese cart of like 40 cheeses in the, in the restaurant. So I'd go in an hour before the rest of the staff at two to um, uh, organize and order all the cheeses because I ran the cheese program as well. Mm. So I did that. And then I started working in the wine program. So I started just lugging cases around. And where that helped me was seeing the labels and I could memorize the producers by looking at the labels. Mm -hmm. And I would, I would come in every day, do the cheese, and then for a half hour, I would just lug cases around the cellar for mm -hmm. Andy. Uh, and then I would get dressed and then work my server shift. It was, it was a tasting menu style restaurant, so we'd be there to 12 to 1 a.m. Mm -hmm. And then we would blind taste. And then I would go home somewhere between wow. 2 or 3. So you're basically sort of like working on your craft or actually working from 10 a.m. to 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning. Just going. And then I would go home. I'd sit on the back patio, have an ice cold beer, smoke, smoke cigarettes, and then go to bed and wake up and do it all over again. <laughs> <laughs> That's so interesting. And yeah. I mean, it, it really does sort of echo, you know, the sort of like obsessiveness that you need sure. in order to, to be successful at anything, particularly in in a field where it is competitive and where it's so difficult to reach that that uppermost level do you have like any specific like very specific things that you think you did that really helped you in terms of uh, memorization techniques or tasting techniques or just anything training related that you sure. helped you know, for, for, for me through uh, what we were doing, it became um, apparent very early on that you had to, for me, I had to, everyone, everyone's, everyone's brain works differently mm -hmm. and they retain information very, very differently. Um, so some people are audible, you know, some people need to write things to memorize them, you know, visual. Um, and, you know, if you've seen, you know, the Psalm documentary, you know, they have these flashcards and people are doing Love this. That. I tried that and it didn't work for me. Mm -hmm. I realized that um, I needed to have full understanding of a region or a style to, to memorize it. So what I started doing was, um, I realized I was an incredibly visual person and I couldn't memorize wine by little facts like that. Like, mm -hmm. what is this weird little question about the small region? What, so what I would do is I, I got an artist portfolio, this massive artist portfolio that had these transparencies and I would hand draw out these maps of these regions and draw in all the rivers and the mountain ranges and which way the wind blew and you know everything. Really? And, I, and then I would leave this big size on the side and I would, I would write down all these facts and I would see the whole page and let's say it was like Chablis and I would do a map of Chablis and I would draw out where all the premier crew and the Grand Cru vineyards were and the river was and the soil types here and you gotta who produces it, you know, what climates are in it. And I would see the whole page and I would memorize the entire page. And what I would do when I would go to my exam is I would close my eyes and I could see the entire page. And it was almost like I was a scanner. I downloaded that information into my head. So when the question came about Chablis, I would close my eyes and I would see the entire page of Chablis and I could almost like, I could just 
recite to you what I was seeing on the page. Um, so that's just how I retain information. And, and so what I would say was I had to, I had to realize that early on that was how I retain information mm-hmm. or it wouldn't have worked for me. And I think that a lot of people that, that are going for the exam try to follow how someone else studies and you have to find your own way and what mm. works for you and how you operate. That's so, so cool. Yeah. Just the, just thinking about drawing it out and the mountain ranges and the yeah. water sources and the wind direction is yeah. all. That's so but cool. But you end up, you literally are painting the picture of what this region is and it's ingrained in your mind. Mm-hmm. You, you have, instead of knowing this one little silly fact, you have a full understanding about what everything in this region is mm-hmm. really about. Yeah. Cool. And, and so then leading into like the master exam, in the six to eight weeks is yeah. that, I mean, for, for example, for me, you know, the six to eight weeks before a race that I do mm-hmm. is always kind of the most critical time sure. and the time where, you know, you can sort of make and break mm-hmm. your race. And then the, the ultimate competition is sort of almost a uh, foregone conclusion based on how you were able to execute in yeah. preparation. Of course. Is the final six to eight weeks sort of like that for you guys as well? Is it even more intense? And and how do you approach that both like for from a like a handling pressure perspective yeah. and preparation? So, you know, it, it's it's always been my theory that uh, the vast majority of people who fail this exam fail themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, the exam is is ridiculously difficult. Uh, it's actually set up for you to fail. The odds are dramatically against you, but um, there's a chance. And more people would have a chance uh, if they knew how to mentally prepare. And that was something that um, that Jay Fletcher sort of told me about. Mm-hmm. And um, so the goal is you have your, your study schedule, you have your training schedule all the way through. And sort of those last two months are really about, it's about retouching on all those regions and about getting your confidence up, mm. right? It's about, you know... Um, so the difference here is you're not competing against anyone else. You're competing against yourself, mm-hmm. which is the which is the most difficult. Because when you're competing against someone else, you can always use another excuse of the guy was just stronger, you know, he had a better day or whatever. But when it's against yourself, you have no, it's just literally you you know you like I screwed no up excuse, and, and there's no the the failure is yours alone, you know, which it puts even more pressure on you. Right? Um, you can't say, well, that guy was just better than me. Because mm-hmm. you're not going against that guy. You're going against yourself. Um, so the you know, that last two months is really about building your confidence in what you know. Um, and and mentally, you know, I mentally go through the exam in my head. I visualize the exam. I visualize going through the service exam. I visualize being in the room, walking into the room, what it feels like. And you sort of say, okay. I close my eyes, I walk into the room, I see these wines. You can almost feel the anxiety in your stomach and, yeah. you, and you, you do is you try to feel it and recognize and go, that's gonna happen, Composure. I can't let that slow me down or stop me. You know what I mean? You sort of have to, yeah. you have to almost feel the emotion before you go in uh, because again, that's that's your brain sort of fucking with you, right? Yeah. And you know it's gonna happen. So how do you, how do you, how do you go, okay, I know this is gonna happen. Right, it's like you know, like being in a boxing match. You're like, I know the guy's gonna punch me in the face. Mm-hmm. You know, I got two options here, I can fold, or I can take it, recover, and go, right? How do I do that? So you sort of, at that you know, at that point, what you're doing is you're going through the exam in your mind and you're going, okay, what does this feel like? How can I control this beast? And you know, when I uh, went in my first time, I didn't control it mm-hmm. and I didn't do that and I, and I felt pretty hard. <laughs> and so, but it took you only two times to pass yeah. the master, mm-hmm. which is pretty impressive, right? I mean, yeah. like it takes most people several yeah. 
failures, right? Sure, sure, sure. Um, you know, many of my friends are seven to 10 times taking the exams. Really? Wow. So, yeah. That's really incredible. So, sort of like beating this sports metaphor sure. <laughs> to death, um, you know, in endurance sports specifically, they're, you know, everybody's familiar with the concept and the value of having training partners. And I sense both from knowing you and seeing the SOM films that the same concept is true in the world of, of sommeliers. So how, how did that work for you? I mean, you said you sort of like did a lot of your studying on your own, but I sense that having training partners too is highly valuable for yeah. a lot of guys in the business. Did you have any experience with that as well? Yeah. So, you know, for, for me, it starts with, um, you know, with the relationship with um, the group that I had in DC it was a really, really strong group. We met every Saturday and Sunday on top of what we were already doing at work, outside of work for a very intense tasting group. And it was, we tasted eight and then 10 in the morning. So what do you call it? six and 25? And we blind taste six and it was a brutal group. Um, we'd walk in and there was this, um, this uh, John Wayback was his name. He's still, in my opinion, one of the most genius blind tastes I've ever seen. He, he, he hasn't passed the exam yet. But he, he never, he passed three of the exams without ever working in a dining room. He was a chef. Really? The guy was a beast. And uh, he would come in, he had this big fat angry cat that just like clawed at everyone, hissed at everyone. It was pretty miserable. And he would blast mariachi or ska music. It was really odd, <laughs> but we always went to his house. Why we continue to go to his house for years, I don't know, but he held the tasting group. And we would all be quasi hungover from the night before because we are training for a sommelier exam. Yeah. So you'd be up, you know, drinking, yada, yada. I imagine that it gets pretty expensive too. Huh? It's incredibly expensive, dude. <laughs> incredibly. Because you can't, you know, blind like tasting grocery college, store probably. wine. Yeah. You're like, you're, you're, you need high quality wines. Yeah. And we would all p pitch in, you know, someone would buy the wines and we'd pitch in every time, 25 to $50 every tasting. Mm. And, you know, so, uh, but luckily we had no other hobbies. You were spending money on anything else. Um, and we would go in and, um, you know, we had this community. It was a very, it was a hostile environment, but it was good for training. They held you accountable. There was no easy off. You know, if you were blind tasting and you were like screwing up the wine, he would cut the music off and go, what the fuck are you doing, Carlton? Mm -hmm. Like, no, next so he would he would stop you. You couldn't blind taste the wine anymore. Give it to somebody else, and you're like, what? Like he would just go, he, he, and then after they would just make fun of you. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? He would just like after a while you were just like, well, I'm I'm gonna train even harder because I don't want to be embarrassed yeah. in this group. And it held you accountable. And then after the blind tasting, we would sit for we would go for lunch, and then come back, and then we would do a theory session. We'd go around the room asking questions. Boom, 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 like this round table for like two hours. You know what I mean? To see whose theory, we'd pick a subject. Um, today is, you know, wines of Greece. And it was, boom, you know, um, tell me what the varietals use in Retsina. Um, what are the regions for this? But, you know, you go through and you just had to be on. Mm -hmm. You know, it was, um, it was like going to like military boot camp. And having that community, one, set the tone for how the intensity level that was necessary to be successful. But it always held you accountable because if you showed up, you had to have your shit I'm together. I'm prepared. They're going to make fun of you. Oh, you just, you <laughs> would be terrified thing. to yeah. show up. You just wouldn't show up. You're like, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be disrespectful to the group. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and they, if you did come up unprepared, I mean, you may, you, you, you would risk not being invited back mm -hmm. because it was disrespectful to the group that you even showed up. Mm -hmm. Um, when I came here, 
Um, there was a much more relaxed community just because that's how people are here. I moved from the city to the mountains. Mm -hmm. um, and by then I had passed the advance. So it was more of, at the time Sabato was working, who was our former director of food and beverages working here. Uh, Chubby, our major D at the time was studying for the advance. Yep. So it was a small community. And I had Jay Fletcher who was sort of Yoda of master sommeliers. And it was much less intense. But at that time I didn't, I didn't really need the intensity as much because yep. I'd already had, that was my, that was the way I operated at that point. I just needed someone to sort of check in to, to sort of work with occasionally, mm -hmm. to do a flight with occasionally and to, to sort of, you know, um, go with some theory. But then I would do over the phone. So my old crew in DC, we would get on the phone and we would go back and forth. And I, hey, John, you got an hour to throw some theory down? He's like, yeah. yeah. So, you know, I'd call him on my day off and we, you know, I'd be at, at the library in Aspen and, you know, I have my headphones on and we go back and forth. Same, Spain, Italy, yeah. you know, we'd just be going. Um, yeah. So, you know, while we didn't, we, we study alone, we test each other. Mm -hmm. That's uh, such a perfect parallel to endurance sport as well. I mean, just because, I mean, a lot of the top athletes in the world across all different sports, but specifically endurance sport train in sort of like a group environment. And yeah. same thing happened when I was living in Marin County, you go out and do a workout with the boys and you, if you get your ass kicked, you know, it's, it's sort of like embarrassing yeah. and motivating and you get better at the same time, you mm -hmm. know, and you don't want to see your contemporaries sort of getting better without you. And, yeah, and I think it just goes such a long way to helping you get better. Um, and I, I just see that as a really interesting part of the whole um, training and studying component of the master exam and yeah. you guys helping each other get over that finish line, even though it's so, so difficult. I imagine it's also super competitive as well. Like, is there, I know like there's camaraderie among the people that study for it, but is it also like a highly competitive business once you get that credential? Obviously having it, I'm sure makes you highly employable, yeah, like yeah, all course. over the world, but I imagine you know the the best jobs come up in different parts of the U.S. or abroad, and you guys are probably competing amongst each other for those positions. Am I right in that fact, or is there any other way that you I, are, I feel that, yourself in competition yeah, with your colleagues? I, I think it's probably more competitive before you pass, in the sense that with the small group of people that are on the same trajectory, you know, I you know we we always say we 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 want our friends to pass, but it's an incredibly honest system in the sense that, uh, I mean, you may have heard of the scandal that happened this year. It was the first time that it ever happened. And what happened? 25 people lost their pen, right? It's an incredibly honest system. I want to talk about that later yeah, if you can. So, um, you know, if you've passed, you've earned it. You know, uh, Jay Fletcher always says, you know, Carlton, we all wanted Bobby Stuckey to pass, but it took him seven times. Yeah. And if that isn't proof that the system is honest, <laughs> you know what I mean? Because yeah. we all wanted him to pass. He's the kind of guy you want in your organization, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so it's very competitive. And, you know, unfortunately, there's some people that I've leapfrogged that started the program long before me and I've passed and they still haven't passed. So it, it tends to be competitive before you pass. But once you pass, what you start realizing is, um, what you do have in common is this, you know, so, sort of this passion for this industry and what we do. You obviously are, are all, you know, you know, fairly intelligent people, fairly gifted people, but you're still very different people. 
and your desires and what you want out of your life and your personal life are still very different. Mm -hmm. And where we're fortunate is the wine industry and the beverage industry is so massive now. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's huge. So some people do service, some people do retail. Yeah, you know, I mean, this is, you know, um, I'm pretty much leaving the restaurant industry right right now. And, uh, but there's some people who they, they, they couldn't imagine leaving the restaurant industry. And there are certain people who look down on people like that as if they, they can't do anything else. What they don't understand is that person is very passionate about that. And that's what they passed for. Mm -hmm. They passed to do a better job at what they're, what they're, they're currently doing. And they're not looking to be, you know, the owner of a massive beverage conglomerate. You know, you, you start realizing that it, you know, once you pass the masters, that's only the beginning of this next phase of the journey, which is okay, now what do I do in my life? And for me passing at 28, I really had a big question. Right. Like, like, okay, great. I, I, I'm, you know, I'm not even 30 years old. I've passed the master's. Like, shit, like I got a lot of years to work, you know? Like <laughs> retirement is like 75, yeah. right? So I've got, you know, almost 50 years to work. 50 years. You know, what am I going to do with 50 <laughs> years? It's crazy thought. You know, when my mentor passed, he was in his 40s. Yeah. And he was still asking himself that question. Just imagine you're 28. I didn't know. I mean, it, didn't even, it still hasn't settled in. Mm-hmm. And you're like, well, you know, I'm just starting my life. Right. You know, I, that's when most people are just starting their normal careers and trying to figure out what they want to do for a living at, mm-hmm. you know, late 20s, early 30s. And I'd already, like, hit the pinnacle of what was supposed to be my career's achievement, right. you know? So so you don't feel like you're you're necessarily in competition with your, with your colleagues. But now that you have passed and you've been so successful in the business – it, it, the work doesn't just stop, right? Like, how do you stay on top of your game now as a master? And how does that look in contrast to how it was when you were hustling to actually pass in the first place? So, so when you're when you are becoming a master sommelier, the, the, you know, the there was the bar is the same for everyone. Um, so that means that you have to be proficient, knowledgeable about everything, even if it's something that, frankly, you're not very interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's things that you you have to study, and you in that that's what it means to have mastered a subject. Um, now, once you once you pass, you know, there's this now two two different levels of of continuing education. There are things that you continue to study because it's part of your job, and there's other parts which just just you know, your, your general interest and in what you were passionate about from the very beginning. So we start seeing people start to specialize in things, uh, even though, you know, they're still well-versed in other regions. You know, you'll see people that, you know, uh, we have a, a master somebody who specializes in wines of New Zealand. He's always been very passionate about the culture and the history of the wine industry there and what, what can be done there. And he became like the guy in New Zealand. And that became his life. And then there's the guy, you know, the guys in Burgundy. And they go, well, you know what? It's all about Burgundy. And, they, mm-hmm. you know, they're there all the time. And, they're, you know, that's what you're doing. You know, right now, currently, you know, uh, what I'm doing is force my focus into a different industry than mm-hmm. business, which is has a lot to do with farming, responsible and, you know, sustainable farming, which I never thought that was. I worked in the dining room. Mm-hmm. I opened bottles for a living. You yeah. know, before, and you, you have know. since you were a kid. Too. Yeah. And that's what I've been doing. So now it's like, okay, now the, the hat is the service hat's off. And now the farming winemaking hats on. So it's got to be exciting. Yeah, and it's it's you know once you once you start down this path of um, uh, this sort of intense learning, it never stops. It just becomes more focused in different areas. Mm-hmm. You so, also almost specialize. So you yeah, so, you formulated a general mastery when you pass mm-hmm. the exam, that, and then the, you you get much when more you specialized. Pass the exam is the most well versed you'll ever be in your entire career. Okay. But what you'll do is you'll shift that energy. The mind only has so much energy, right? Mm-hmm. It's what you can do. You take that and you now shift it into one area. Yeah. 
and he becomes focused in that one area. So now you become, you know, focused on the minutia of this, this, or these couple topics. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, do I, can I tell you the, the soil type of Nimia in Greece right now? No. Could I have six <laughs> years ago? Yeah. And I could tell you a whole, a whole lot more about it, yeah. but it's just not something that interests me. No. Right. That could be that could change in the in the in the, in, the, in a minute. There could be you know uh, my girlfriend and I can decide to go to Greece and I may visit a winery that just like reinvigorates that passion, mm-hmm. where I'm like now ultra interested in it and I'm like now it's like the focus is on that. I'm like I want to learn even more about that. Um, it's and the that's, best feeling in the world. Isn't oh, it, it is. Yeah. It is. It is. It's like reinvigorating. You know. Um, cool. You mentioned just a second ago something about mentors and mentorship, and that's another thing I kind of wanted to touch on that. I recognize as being super helpful in your industry. Who were some of your best mentors? I know you've mentioned a few already. And then how have you sort of taken that mantle as a master now to groom the next generation as a, as a mentor yourself? So a, b- a big part of the master sommelier program is mentorship. Um, uh, and for one of the reasons is that, you know, we are as Americans, a very young wine drinking country and the chances that an American has grown up in a wine drinking family is very rare, especially where it was actually spoken about at the table, let alone consumed at the table. Yeah. So, you know, mentoring hospitality professionals down this, this, this road is the, the only way that this, the organization sustains. Um, you know, for me, um, no one in my family, even to this day drinks wine. So I was not surrounded by it at all. So it was all very new to me, which intrigued me, but also intimidated me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm half black, half Jewish. And I didn't see anyone in the career that looked or sound or was from the place where I was from doing that field. So I, there was nothing that told me that I was capable of it. Mm-hmm. Realistically, you sort of, as, as someone who's young, you sort of need to see someone that you can relate to doing that job to, to think that you can do it, mm-hmm. right, in a sense. Um, and um, when I got to, when I returned to DC, when I met Andy, and he was so different than um, anyone else I had seen in the career, I mean, this is Andy Meyer, you said? Yeah, You're yeah. the guy who sort of led your guys' battle yeah, royale. Yeah, he's very intense. He's this guy, you know, he's, Andy's probably 6'5", really tall, lanky mm-hmm. guy with this big goatee. As he always says, my beard's older than you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, completely tatted out. You know, after, after you know, we would go to these... Uh, punk rock clubs, go to 930 club, see these crazy like punk. I never listened to punk rock growing up. I didn't know what it was or death metal, not a clue. And I was like, this guy's, this guy's nuts. And he doesn't look like what you would see as a sommelier. So I sort of like, so uh, his, I was is he a master now? He or? is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he runs, uh, he's the corporate one director for Jose Andres restaurants yeah. internationally. So you would say that this guy is sort of like your biggest mentor. I would have no career in the wine world without Andy Myers. Cool. What does he question. do now? He's he's running Jose Andres' restaurant group oh. as the as the the beverage director for the entire world. Wow! Oh, it's a badass and job. And that guy's and a saint, Jose Andres. Yeah, I mean <laughs> the two of them together, it's like nuts. Oh, that's so cool. Um, and you guys keep in touch still? Uh, very much so. Cool. Yeah, he's an incredible guy. And you know what what attracted me to to Andy and the way that he operated was that he he took wine. Uh, from a different perspective. There was never any like pretension behind it or the stuffiness. He just wasn't that guy. And he sort of, you know, uh, showed that you, 
you could be, I mean, he was, from, he's actually from like Maryland, right outside of DC. And he, you know, he grew up in the punk rock era in like downtown DC. So we were from similar areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he was like the one white kid in DC, you know, that, you know, was like this hardcore death metal guy that sort of fit in with everyone. And, um, so in a sense, we were both sort of, you know, not your stereotypical people that you would see in yeah. the wine industry. So I sort of like, we identify we, with each other. Yeah. And we bonded over that. Yeah. And we made fun of that. We thought it was hilarious that we were, you know, here was this, this, this little punk rock kid and how was this little like kid from the ghetto like studying the new mass so many yeah. we thought it was hilarious. And we were doing it together and I think um, we we ended up driving each other mm-hmm. and being together, we were far more successful working and training together because we had that sort of common ground. And he was like the first, he was by far the first mentor, but a mentor for a very long time. It wasn't a temporary um, uh, relationship and yeah. carried on even through through here because he would, you know, we hosted the master swing exam and asked him. So he would right. come off for the exam every year. We kept the relationship going. Uh, but when I moved here to, to Aspen, you know, he was he was in, in D.C. He was the other side of the country. So um, I would say that, you know, uh, Jay Fletcher and Sabato sort of took the reins as far as being mentors locally. Yeah. Um, and I know, always really admired Sabato, too. Yeah. It's just like a hard working dude. Yeah, know, but he also who, he is he's a very creative mind, yeah. which, which I loved. Um I come I came from a very regimented, fairly strict service background. And Sabato always had um always forced you to think the alternative. Yeah. Which was a completely different perspective for me. Um than like, no no no, you do it this way and this is the train, this is how you do it. Yeah. You know, he, he was always about these creative ideas and we would sit down with the team, me, Chubby, and everyone else. And it was always about this new creative, cool idea we can do to make this revenue and do this thing. And yeah. it sparked a, a totally different part of the mind, which is which is really cool. Yeah. And then, you know, training with Jay, you know, Jay Jay Fletcher was the chairman of the quartermaster some ways for, for, for years. And um, what people don't know about him is he was, uh, he was a ski bum, you know, you know, that was a, he was a pool shark and then a ski bum that really just started studying wine to, make more money to feed his kids. It, it wasn't that like he also, you know, no one in his family drinks wine. You know, yeah. he comes from Wisconsin. These guys, you know, drink beer and eat cheese curds. You know yeah. what I mean? Like he also comes from the fringes of society. Right. Um, and he sort of moved his way up. So I also, again, sort of bonded with him over that. And, you know, when I moved to Aspen, I had dropped out of the program. Mm-hmm. I passed three of the four exams. I was I passed my advanced exam. So there's the introductory level, the certified, the advanced, and the masters. I passed the advanced when I was 24 years old, and um, which was nuts. I came. I was a little burnt out, to be honest with you. I had all, pretty much only worked since I was too like 14 much Starbucks years old. and cigarettes. Oh, dude, I was burnt out. <laughs> yeah, it was too much, and I was done. I was like, look, you know, he says, well, when are you gonna take the masters? And Jay's a really funny guy. And I said, well, um, I'm, I'm, I'm done. You know, I think I'm going to step out. He goes, Carlton, you, so you, you pass the event at the age of 24 and you're just done. And you got a job <laughs> in the wine department yeah, at the Little Dell. No. He's like, you're done? He's like, you're not done? <laughs> he goes, okay, okay. And he starts laughing in the way he does. He's sitting there drinking his beer. And he comes back to me two weeks later. He goes, Carlton, he goes, um, um, I just want to let you know, we, we secured the master sommelier exam. It's going to be held here at the Little Nell. So it looked really embarrassing if you didn't take the exam. So that's why he, that's how he, you know, coerced me back into advantage too. Yeah, that's how he pushed me in. And then again, that competitive part of the mind kicked in. Like, oh man, you know, like I can't, I can't not take this and like compete. You know yeah. what I mean? I've got to, you know, if you, it's imagine like if you were to say, you know, I'm never, I'm never doing 
you know, ultras ever again. You know, I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna go for some strolls and you know, you know, get my life together. And he, he goes, okay. He goes, oh, by the way, uh, the most elite, you know, um, race you know, is all, happening. Race is backyard. happening right in your backyard. Don't blow it. Yeah, you go, you go. Well, I have yeah, to I do, it. do it. So the tough thing was there is that was in October, and the exam was May the next year. Mm-hmm. I hadn't picked up a book in a year. Mm-hmm. I was 25. Um, I was completely off my game. It's like, just imagine you stop working out. You're right. just sitting on your couch eating ho-hos and chilling, right? You know, you're just know. out I think, of shape. I was actually going to ask you about that a little bit too. I think there is a lot of value in just sort of like stepping away for a little while and freshening sure, sure, sure. up. For, for a little while, 100%. When you picked your books back up, I'm yeah. sure it came back fairly quickly. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned it. It was, it was good and bad. Bad because the momentum was gone. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's like, um, yeah, I mean, it's like, it's like training for anything else. Like you don't have, the movements aren't yeah. as instinctual anymore. You got to take an off season, right? And yeah. I was actually uh, on somebody else's podcast recently and I mentioned that my father-in-law plays the piano, Harmony's uh-huh. dad plays the piano and he takes the winter off, or I'm sorry, he takes the summer completely off from playing oh, the wow. piano. And then, you know, in the fall, he starts playing again and he's a little rusty and then by... Christmas season, we're belting carols out around the <laughs> piano, and he's in mid-season form. It's like everybody's got to take a break. So, well, I think I think it does reinvigorate your passion a little bit. Um, and uh, but yeah, but you know what? What what Jay started to work on me with was which I'd never dealt with was was the mental part of it. Where we talked about, you know, he was he trained a lot of master sommeliers, and he had watched a lot of people fail. Like the confidence and composure you need to Just, actually execute on the day. Yeah, like yeah. where your mind should be at different points of training, mm-hmm. which I never consider. I, I was a. Uh, I run down and get one cow instead of walk down and get all sort of uh. guy. I was just, I was young. I was hammering it. You know, I didn't ever take a break in between the exam. I went from, I took all three exams in a year and a half, all three. Mm-hmm. And I passed, passed all of them. Boom, boom, boom. And that was, but the masters is in that game. It's yeah. psychological. The masters is essentially the advanced level exam, but more intense. Mm-hmm. The criteria is the same. The, the structure is the same. It's just a little bit more intense. So it's more of a mind game than anything else. If you can pass the advance, you can you can, you can pass, pass the masters. In the, if from the skill psych- perspective, exactly. you just have to execute. If your psychological is there. So what Jay was doing was a lot of, you know, training on like wh- where's your mind at. Wow. You know, which is something that, you know, a lot of people training for this don't take into consideration. It is massive, yeah. massive. Yeah. That's so interesting. I feel like we could talk about that for a long time too, but I want to, just in the interest of time, talk a little bit about the future for you. Um, But before we get there, you've worked here at the Little Nell since 2011. I think we came in around the same time. You've been the wine director since what, 13, 2013? Uh What does that mean practically in terms of like your day-to-day responsibilities here at the hotel? And then maybe in answering that question, talk a bit about what the wine program is like at the hotel and what makes it special. So, um, you know, I'll say that um, anyone can buy wine, right? Wine is for sale and it's up for grabs for anyone to buy. So while many people have always looked at the greatest asset of, of our wine program is our collection. It's really not, mm-hmm. um, you know, there, uh, we have the whole, we have, uh, you know, roughly 22,000 bottles in our collection by any measure. It's, it's a massive collection of wine and one of the greatest in the world. Uh, but again, anyone can do that. If you got $5 million, you go buy wine, yeah. you got it. There you go. Uh, you know, I think where the pressure for me was 
becoming the wine director here and what I found was so special um, was the wine director Little Now is far more than the wine director here. You become really the face of the hotel because the wine program is such an integral part of what you think of at, at the Little Now, which is so odd. You know, this is a five-star hotel with, you know, 92 rooms, the base of Ass Mountain. And when a lot of people think of Little Now, they think of wine. And it's so odd. And, that, that, and, that, and, and where that comes from is from generation after generation of wine director that have, you know, um, come forth as that representative. And, it, and, it, 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 and that, those relationships comes from um, um, how we deal with guests and, and being the more consistent person on property. You know, the average tenure for a wine director here is six years which is unheard of in the yeah. restaurant industry. So you become what people come and go, the wine director is always here. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, for me, it was not just about filling pages with names of wines. It was being a representative of what the Nell was really supposed to be about, which is genuine hospitality. Yeah. Um, in training people on that, you know, my my role here has been just as a manager or an ambassador as as a wine director, mm -hmm. and especially in the last few, you know, three or four years, you know, once we really beefed up our sommelier team and and, and continue to train them, and you know, all my guys on the team were advanced level sommeliers and uh, was training for their masters, you know, it became less necessary for me to sort of be the guy standing at the on table, the floor. just trying to go and hey, can I sell you a bottle of wine? Right. It was really about you know working the dining room in. Um, continuing to solidify relationships with restaurant guests and then hotel guests that may not even dine here. Yeah. Um, and being that representative that can you know, preach the gospel of Little Nell all around the world. And that's what the wine director position here has become. And it started very early on with Mark Pape, which most people don't know was the first wine director of the Little Nell who started to build a collection and build that, that following. And then Bobby Stuckey, you know, who has a, a really sort of large yeah. in life. Frosca. Um, yeah, Boulder, very Colorado. intense pos yeah. personality. He was a former pro athlete too. Absolutely. Yeah. He's, he's still a machine. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, then Bobby Stuckey and yeah. then, you know, and then Sabato and then Dustin and Richard Jonathan Betts. And, and Betts and everything. They, everyone came through and then, um, you know, everyone had these strong personalities and became the face of the hotel, which that became the tradition is the wine yeah. director becomes the face of the hotel, which is a much bigger responsibility than just buying and selling wine. Mm -hmm. That's that's really, um, it's so cool to like uh, know all you guys and sort of like follow your careers and see um, people like Bobby Stuckey and Richard Betts and Dustin and yeah. Sabato and, and all you guys sort of like move on to different things, but still yeah. be at the top of your it's game all these crazy in the industry. It's yeah. an odd group of people. But it, it's, <laughs> it's so cool like that the little Nell has that tradition, yeah. right? And it must be really cool for you to be a member of that fraternity of guys. And now I, I'm sure, you know, you've you've spoken with a lot of those guys about your your next step yeah. in your career. And I guess we should talk about that now. Sure. Um, I know today is one of your, your final days uh -huh. here at the hotel. I'm sure it's bittersweet for you. But Less why, than a week to go. Why don't you, uh, why don't you tell us what's, uh, what's next and, and how is it different and how is it the same to what you've been doing the last eight years here sure. at the um, So... Um, so I'll be the uh, taking the position as CEO of Heights Cellar. Um, so Heights Cellar is uh, a pretty legendary estate. Uh, Joe Heights, who started Heights Cellar in 1961, um, was really one of the pioneers of the Napa Valley. You know, he came there in the 40s um, as uh, an expat. He was in the military during World War II, and then sort of was finding his way. He was in farming, and agriculture, 
and began making wine and then worked for Bolio Vineyards, a very legendary estate. Um, they've been going since 1900. He worked under uh, Andre Telechev. Andre Telechev was a Hungarian gentleman who trained in Bordeaux in the Great Chateau and brought his expertise to Napa Valley and you know, pretty much taught a bunch of what were back then sort of backcountry winemakers how to make wine professionally the, the way they did in France. Mm-hmm. He worked under him for about 10 years at Boyo and then went off on his own and started Heights Cellar. And Heights Cellar has been making um, the same style, the very old school traditional style since 1961 and never really um, turned into you know, what we call Napa, Napa Valley Disneyland. Um, and it's, it's still a very old world, like, um, you know, uh, a state. Um, so the Heights family decided to sell about a year ago. And when they decided to sell, um, they put it on the market, but made it very clear they were not going to sell to a big conglomerate or corporation as all the other brands had. Because what those corporations do, and rightfully so, they have, you know, they, they, they're publicly traded companies is, you know, they like a mop, they just ring it out as for as much yeah. revenue as they can get. And they destroy the brands, unfortunately. But again, sacrifice if quality. If you're the CEO of that company, that is your job. Of it's all profitability. Um, they wanted to sell to a family, um, which there are very few families that can afford, afford to, to buy an estate like that. What people didn't know was that the Heights family had acquired an enormous amount of land over those years. They owned 425 planted acres, over a thousand actual acres of land um, in Napa Valley, which is nuts. Yeah. Um, no one knew that because they only produce, you know, maybe 30,000 cases. Really? Uh, and the rest, they just sold off grapes. They were in the farming business mm-hmm. more so than the winemaking business. No one knew that. So um, the gentleman who bought it, Galen Lawrence, who's an incredible man, um, he was a wine client here. And when we, we started the conversation to talk about um, where to invest in vineyard land. The two regions that we, we, we got down to were Burgundy and then Napa Valley. And what, you know, what my advice was to keep your money in the, in the country. Um, some of you know what's going on in the economy. Yeah. Uh, if history repeats itself in Europe, God knows what's going to happen with land sure. rights and what's going on in Europe right now. So um, he agreed and said, I'll start looking at Napa Valley. And I didn't hear from him about four months. And, uh, and he randomly calls me and says, Carlton, um, I'm coming back to ask him. I want to discuss something with you. I said, sure. He says, I, I got an opportunity to buy an enormous amount of land. This is about how much they're asking. What do you think? And I said, um, I said, well, that's going rate. It's not cheap. It's not expensive. It's actually pretty good. So if they can get mm-hmm. around that, great. So he flies out. A few months later, he calls me again and he says, hey, I, I, you, know, you should come down to Arkansas. Let's drink some wine. He's from Arkansas. <laughs> I said, well, I've never been to Arkansas. So Let's he, go. He's a little now guest. He's yeah, been yeah. For a while. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Uh, and, and a great guy. Really, really funny. Yeah. So we fly down to Arkansas and we're on his estate there and we're hanging out, drinking some wine. And he says, well, I think I'm going to buy this thing, but there is a, um, there is a very historical estate attached to it, as I found out. Um, and I can't tell you the name of it, um, but if you were to name the five five wineries in Napa Valley that you as a sommelier would be more likely to reach from Napa Valley, what would they be? And I listed all, I listed my five. He said, okay, thank you. Nothing. And we just had dinner. I spent a couple of days, we, you know, went to Memphis, <laughs> hung out and I came home and I said, okay. And he calls me like four months later. He says, um, I just want you to know, we just closed. I'm now the owner of Heights Cellar. <laughs> I go, no shit, like, dude. It was one of my, it was one of my five. Yeah. It was pretty high up on the five, actually. Yeah. Um, because of the style of wine, it's very Bordelais in style. Higher acid, you know, less ripe, less extracted, less oak. Very, very old school winemaking. Sure. And um, so it goes on. I say, congratulations. You know, he invited me out to check out the, the, the estate. And I said, sure. I was very genuinely happy for him and his family. And I could not have... Um, I couldn't have thought of a better family to own that estate and in such good hands as someone who would respect 
the tradition of what Heights family was about. Um, and I was like, wow, that's so great. You know, um, you know, we see in the in the wine industry what we do. A lot of these companies sell out, and it's just it's heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. It's like, what if Chateau Latour sold out to Constellation, Constellation Group, Brands. and then you just saw like Chateau Latour Coastal Reserve for yeah. like ten dollars in the grocery store? Right. That's what they do, unfortunately, because that's how you actually make money mm-hmm. on production. But this is more of a land deal in the brain deal. But anyway, so fast forward, I go out to Napa, I check it out. And I don't know many people who have ever been to Heights Cellar because they didn't really enjoy people coming to the winery. They didn't let people in. Mm-hmm. So I felt very honored. I was like, how cool is this? And, you know, of course, they were very gracious. And, you know, the team was great. And I, I met the new management team. And um, there were some some sort of red flags that came up about like what the, the new management team were planning for the winery. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, it's not my company, but he's a friend. So I said, hey, you know, you might want to, you know, look at these few things. He mm-hmm. says, what do you think? And I said, well, you look at these things. He says, well, send me an email about if this was your winery, if Carlton McCoy had just purchased Heights Cellar himself, what would you do and, and what wouldn't you do? And again, as a friend, I wasn't charging him a consultant fee or anything say like that. Right. He's a friend. I said, I said, look, this is what you should be doing. In my opinion, my humble opinion, mm-hmm. this is what you should not be, absolutely not be doing. And I didn't hear from him for two weeks. So I thought it was very odd. And then he came back to me. He says, well, my concern is the things you said not to do is what, what's currently happening. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm concerned. I'm going to run this by a couple other people that I trust. Not that I don't trust you, but I want to get a couple other opinions. Second opinion. And he, he sort of came back and said, you know, you were right. Everyone said the same thing. This isn't what we should be doing. And I'm very concerned. Um, and he talked to the management team and they're concerned. That's what they wanted to do. So he essentially let the management team go. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know, the old saying, you have uh, 20 years to build a reputation, five minutes to ruin it. Right. You know, um, he knew that if what was happening, what was about to happen, actually went through, you would ruin 60 years of mm-hmm. a reputation. Mm-hmm. So there he is with a brand new winery. And no well, management him, team. And no management team. And he, he's not in the wine <laughs> Colin, industry. Carlton he's not in the wine industry. He, yeah. he has an incredible collection, incredible seller. Yeah. He loves fine wine, but the business of wine is very Fish different. And it's incredibly yeah. unique, the wine business. Um, you know, you have f- farming, winemaking, marketing, branding, all these things. So he flies me back out and he says, look, Carlton, you told me to buy this thing, you know, <laughs> and here <laughs> I am. on you now. <laughs> you know, you need to find me someone. And we started talking and um, the, the conversation quickly turned to, is this something you, you would be do? interested in? Um, and I made it clear to him. I said, look, you know, um, I've studied winemaking. I've never made a wine. Yeah. He says, well, you don't have to worry about that. We have a really talented young winemaking team. Um, they've been here for their entire careers and they know how to, they know the, the Heights recipe. Yeah. I said, well, you know, you see these hands, you know, I, I don't prune vines. I'm not digging up earth for these things. <laughs> you know what I mean? And he says, you know, you don't have to worry about that. We have uh, Jack Neal and son. They've been the, the vineyard manager since 1961. Yeah. Since Heights started. Yeah. Uh, you know, so essentially what he was asking was someone to direct it down the path that it needed to go for its next life. Yeah. So I thought about it a bunch. And came home and talked to the lady about it, and um, and it became the question. Like we said, you know, you pass the masters. I continued the You're job. Twenty eight. You were yeah, yeah already yeah, have yeah. a great position, but yeah, you got to well, do something. I'm next. too young. What's yeah, next? I'm 34 yeah. right now. Right. I've already been at the Nell for nine years almost. That's amazing. You go. So what do you do next? And I said, you know, this is maybe this is this is it. Yeah. And you know, um, so I accepted the job and, and realized very quickly that. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's a big one. It's going to be a big, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, we own, we own 425 acres and constantly, you know, acquiring and your, more your, land soon. Your job is to be the executive, right? Like, yeah, I mean, we're running everything. Yeah. Um, wow. So that includes farming, that includes winemaking, the marketing, rebranding, national sales, everything. Well, you're sort of doing it all. I'm sure you're going to be highly successful and I can't wait to follow it. Um, 
winding down, I have a couple more things I want to ask you. So maybe just like briefly. Sure. Um, the I, I read in the Aspen Times that the winemaker, who's going to be your new colleague here very soon, is mm-hmm. also very young, like mm-hmm. 29. She's 29. 29-year-old female yeah. and your 34-year-old second African-American master yeah. som in the world. It does part of that, like your history of like scrappiness and like non-traditional upbringing sort of resonate there as well like will your partnership with her be a really important thing and yeah have I you mean, guys already developed a, so a relationship say, you know obviously you know i'm um half african-american half jewish young yeah. guy you know she's female 29 years old head winemaker yeah. the assistant winemaker is a homosexual guy uh i mean it's it's <laughs> You know, we're sort of like a walking, like United Colors of Benetton. It's like and Heights. Northern California, <laughs> perfect. Yeah, it really mix, is. Mix match. I don't know. You know, I'd, I'd, what I'll say is um, my my experience in my career and where I've come from has created the mindset that you know I don't care who's doing the job, but you got to get the job Do it done. Right. Yeah. So we don't. We you know I don't. A lot of people are conditioned to look for a certain type of person for a job, mm-hmm. but I but I don't think that way because of where I've come from and other people that I've seen sort of come from non traditional places for the jobs that they're holding. So, you know, any, maybe a, another CEO would take that job, and the first person they would do would maybe hire someone else on top of yeah. of her and go, okay, well, you know, you can keep that position, but we're gonna have an overseer, winemaker, a consultant, or something that has another 20 vintages under their belt. I, you know, I look at what we're trying to accomplish and you know, I, uh, I approach the winery and farming business with the same intensity um, and, and sense of urgency that I did in a restaurant. And that's very different in the wine industry. That's unheard of. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a very lax business and I, I don't know how to be that way. Mm-hmm. So I need young people around me that can keep up with the pace at the the rate in which we do things. You know, I just flew back this morning and I was in meetings all yesterday. At the end of the meeting, they go, that's enough, Carlton. Like we can't, that's enough for this month. And I said, no, like you just keep the list going because the moment you scratch off, we need to constantly be reprioritizing and going and going. We, we have to always be, we have to overwhelm ourselves to, to, to accomplish what we need to accomplish. And you should always leave the office you know, feeling accomplished, but realizing that there's so much more you needed to accomplish. Yeah. You know, and you you need someone who has an just open mind and, the, and, the and is not stuck in their ways, yeah. and he just wants to be a part of that kind of energy. Yeah. You're now a uh, an endurance athlete yourself. I figured yeah. we would sort of touch sure. on that briefly before I let you go. Yeah. So you've done the New York City Marathon a couple of times. Mm-hmm. You ride your bike a lot. Yeah. Maybe just briefly tell me if you see any parallels between those two activities and, and does your history as a master psalm help you with the discipline uh, that it takes to, to get ready for a marathon like, uh, like New York City? Yeah. So, so when I passed the exam, um, I, I don't, I don't, I'd never worked out in my life. I, I, was, I was a really chubby kid. I just say fat kid. I wasn't chubby. I was fat. It's like 275 pounds by the time I was 15. Uh, and that's because I was raised in a poor family. We ate a lot of fatty foods and carbohydrates and sat on our asses and we had a good time doing it. But you know, you, you, you know, there's a lot of big sons of bitches in my neighborhood. Yeah. So, um, that wasn't what I did. And no one I surrounded myself with, especially before I moved to Aspen, ever exercised. I mean, we never had a, uh, our heart rates never went up, you know? Right. And, and, um, so when I passed the exam, there's this massive uh, void left. You know, if you spin, I started studying wine when I was 23 and, and I passed when I was 20. I had five years of my adult life 
doing this intense training and, and then it was over. And I was like, what the hell did I do with my time mm. now? I've never, I haven't had a hobby, you know, since maybe since I was in high school, yeah. you know, and, uh, so just had a and I sit down with, with Papa Fletch as we call him. And he says, well, Carlton, it's time for you to start, you know, getting your mind and your body back together. And I said, what do you mean? I don't know. I take into consideration that I'd, the body was never together. So <laughs> I was like, this is the best shape I've been in my, yeah. all my life. Um, and you know, he put, uh, you know, the bug in my ear about, you know, athleticism and health and how that, you know, he says, Carlton, you know, you see a lot of guys who pass and they start blowing up and they, you know, these guys gain all this weight and they rest in their laurels. And he's like, that's not what all day day." and they travel and just eating fatty foods and, you know, living the high life. He says, that's not what Aspen, you know, Aspen Sommelier is about. And we started talking a lot about it and he started talking about the legacy of, you know, Bobby Stuckey Stucky. and, you know, Richard, Richard Betts, Betts had, yeah. you know, all these guys who these intense. And I started thinking about it and I said, look, Jay, I said, look, do I look like an athlete? You know what I mean? He says, look, you know, you start now. So I set this, you know, really what I believe was an unattainable goal of running a marathon yeah. within a calendar year of passing the exam. <laughs> and I'd never run before in my yeah. life. And I just started running. And, um, you know, the first day it was, can I run two blocks, yeah. <laughs> two blocks? And I remember feeling like my lungs were exploding and I, I thought I was going to faint and it was two blocks. And then the other two blocks, again, I didn't have any running gear or anything. I just yeah. threw on like some shorts that I wear around the house and two blocks and two blocks and two blocks. And then it was, it was, you know, okay, can I run there? And then stop. And then I walk home mm-hmm. and, and it just kept going until, you know, you started getting the, the, yeah. you know, the muscle strength and the core strength to keep it going. And it became a pain threshold thing. It was, it, it, it was very mental. It was like, how much, how much can I suffer mentally before I just crack? And when my mind decided to give up, my body did too, which is what I realized. Mm-hmm. It was very much like training where there is no shortcut and there's no secret to it. You know, Just people, like your, your master people want to know like, you know, what's the trick? You know, I said, I'll tell you what the trick is. Wake up every morning and go to the Starbucks and sit there for four hours, for five years, every day with your back hurting from carrying, you know, Packs pounds of, of books and, you know, huffing cigs and like <laughs> you're just stressing out and working another 12 hours in training. Like it's really, it's called sacrifice. Yeah. Sacrifice and putting yourself in very uncomfortable situations to get uh, to grow. Uh, extraordinary results. So extraordinary mm-hmm. results take uncomfortable scenario and extraordinary yeah. effort. Um, and it was just, it just became every day, do it at the end, do it at the end until I entered my first half marathon, which, you know, I, that same anxiety that I felt when I was taking my exam, I felt again, like, really? you know, I was like, you know, I was still out of shape, but I could run, I could run. And, uh, I was like, fuck, this is going to be so embarrassing. I'm not even going to finish this thing. You know what I mean? <laughs> And I, and I, and I finished and I was like, it, it's incredibly empowering is what it is. Yeah. You know, when I passed the master's exam, it was very empowering. It says, if you can do this, like, what can't you do? Right. You know, and it, it, it translates through everything I did in my life. Um, and it became these little achievements. And, and every time I would go for a run, it was the best way to start your day. Cause it was like this little achievement that started with these like really positive endorphins. Like yeah. I, I achieved this thing in the morning. So everything else started out in that, in that, in that way. So, uh, so I did New York that next year and finished less than four hours. And then, you know, after that, it was just the bug. It was like, okay, great. Now I want to learn how to ride a road bike. Yeah. I've never ridden a road bike before. And so I started riding bikes and I started doing that. And you know, what I realized and what made me respect um, elite athletes was, you know, this, unlike studying for an exam where you can just, 
you can just recite a bunch of facts. You know, being an elite athlete is not just the work you put in. You got to sort of be built for it. Mm-hmm. You just have to. Um, and I just realized that, um, you know, I would always do my best. And when I got out there on the bike, I would always go as hard as I could. But, you know, riding next to, I had the opportunity to like ride bikes next to Lance Armstrong and yeah. George Hincapie and all those guys and, and Christian Vandeveld and Craig Lewis. And you go like, and no matter how much I train, right, yeah. <laughs> you know I, mean? I look at my genetic build. Well, but and, it's the same thing. Like yeah. no matter how much those guys train, they can Exa- never pass the master exam. Exactly. You got to so, go how cool it is. Yeah. And I, I think it's, uh, it's, it's a very cool thing. And it's an interesting thing watching someone whose body is built for a sport and just knowing they grew up not knowing that. And they yeah. just have like you, right? Yeah. You didn't, when we first started, no, you didn't run at all. Yeah. I mean, and all of a sudden, the very beginning, I remember someone going like, Dude, Dylan Bowman just won like a 50 mile race. I go, I didn't even know the guy ran, <laughs> right? And like how crazy that is. Right. Like, like you didn't know when you were 10 years old that yeah. your body was built to be an elite athlete. You know, like right. Lance Armstrong, Lance Armstrong didn't know, you know, when he was six years old, just learning how to ride a bike, that one day he'd be the greatest cyclist in American history. Yeah. To me, that's that's mind blowing. So what I do is, you know, I always I don't expect that from myself. Right. Right. I don't expect that I'm gonna I'm gonna go put on a team jersey and, and race, you know, the Tour de France. But when you're out there, there is this competitive set where you're competing against yourself where it's like, what's the best that I can do today? Yeah. And that's the thing, is is you know, you it is also a team sport, very much like uh, running, you know, when I ran when I ran New York and I've run it a couple of times, is is you start there's this camaraderie of people, it's almost like uh, like going through a battle together where you understand each other on the level that if you're not in that race, you don't get it. 100%. You absolutely don't get it. And there's nothing wrong with that, but even your loved one, your wife, your husband, they just don't get it. They yeah, can be supportive, it. but they'll never understand what it means when, right. you know, I remember the first I time that, I read- I think that's why, like, in my sport and, yeah. and I think in, in your industry as well, like, the guys I race against are yeah. some of my good buddies, and I'm sure the same oh, is true at I, the court. I remember the first time I read New York, we, we were about, uh, it was mile 16, it was like right before you turn onto, off that bridge, and I was, um, I, you, the bridge is, the arches, and you don't realize that when you're driving over these bridges that there's an elevation yeah, gain yeah. and you go down, but when you're running and you're, yeah, you know, you and it. you're a fat ass and you're, you know, you're running your first marathon and you're 16 miles in, you feel every step, yeah. <laughs> you know? So I'm running and there's this Russian guy that is walking up the hill and leaning on the median. Yeah. And he is bunked. He is down for the count. And he was, what he was doing was he was looking at all, you know, they were in this band that you throw the gel packets out. He was looking for a gel packet that had some in it. <laughs> it looked like we were on a battlefield, oh, like a the beaches situation. of Normandy here. And I, and I had some and I stopped and I handed him this thing and he looked at me like, like I literally just saved his life. And he he, he ate this gel. He, he was so tired he couldn't tell me thank you. And I said, oh, he, he's okay. And I, I ran. He ended up beating me in the race. I saw him pass me. But it was that sort of thing. We had sort of gone through that thing together. Yeah. And he looked at me when he passed like, me. He sort of, of like gave me this yeah. look of like, thank you so much. But see you later, bud. <laughs> uh, and he was gone. But it was that, you know, you go through this thing together. There is uh, a rush and exhilaration and, and this fulfillment from achievement that, you know, once you start achieving things in your yeah. life, you have to always do Keep it. Keep going. You can't. That's I would, why, yeah. Like, Ellery, my girlfriend doesn't understand why I have to work out in the morning. It's because I've become accustomed to small achievements in the morning yeah. and what that means for me and what that sets, how that sets a tone for my the day. Yeah. It's not about burning calories. It's really not. Sure, would I love to have a six pack and be like Jack? Sure, 
Uh, but that's really actually not the goal. Yeah. I would love that. The goal is it's it's small psychological achievements every day that it, it, it sets the tone of I can achieve, and you and you and you hammer through the day. I think that's that's beautiful. And yeah. when you're when the training kind of comes to a close for studying for the exam that took up five years of your life, then you start training for something else. And for sure, sort of something I always think about too, is like, eventually I'm going to have to figure out what's next to, <laughs> to a certain degree. And, Maybe piano. And a life, yeah. Maybe. Lifelong, <laughs> you know, at least the last decade of like training every day. Yeah. Like I'm going to need something like that. Sure. That's going to like be, uh, you know, a goal that I can set for myself and continue to, I mean, to grow and progress. So maybe I'll, I'll yeah. uh, ask for your mentorship. Well, I get concerned when I'm like, okay, so what do you do when you're like 70? Yeah. Like, what do you do to challenge yourself I can't even think at a high that. level? It's actually sort of depressing. You got to sort of start thinking about it. Now I'm like, you know, is it something physical? Is it now mental? Do I like, yeah. you know, like, what do you do? I, I'm, I'm legitimately golf. concerned because you, oh, golf, <laughs> you, you, you know, it, 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 it's a personality type. And if you can look at people who are in the elite of anything, you know, they tend to, you know, connect on a plane of people who are, um, they, they must achieve excellence. And if they can't get there, the, the, that journey to excellence is what they do with their lives. They have to, they can't, if I can see if there's, if there's the greatest of something, I got to get to the greatest, Have to. you know, and you know, you talk to Bobby about it and he's like, great. He's like, I was a, a, a bike racer for many years and I just had to, I wanted to get to the elites. So I became a professional bike racer. And then when I stopped doing that, you know, I couldn't do that anymore. And then it was, okay, there's this massive swing thing. I got to achieve that. Okay, great. So I I got that now. Open a restaurant. Yeah. He's like, I open a restaurant. (laughs) The best restaurant. The best restaurant. (laughs) What are the awards I can get? And it's like this intensity level where, um, you know, you have to achieve whatever the the pinnacle of success for that field is. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just, it's fulfilling to surround yourself with those type of people. Yeah, it super is. Yeah. Well, Carlton, I'm glad to surround myself with people like you. And uh, thanks for taking the time. And um, I'm proud of you, man. And uh, good luck in the, you know, your future endeavor here that's coming up sooner than... We, uh, we expect. So thank you, sir. It's been a pleasure. Come visit me in Napa. We'll go for a ride. <laughs> Hell yeah. Thanks, bud. Okay, that does it for episode one. I really hope you guys enjoyed it. You can check out Carlton on Instagram at his handle at Carlton McCoy. And while you're there, check out Wine Empowered, which is a new organization Carlton is affiliated with, which seeks to empower women and minorities in the wine industry through tuition-free education. Pretty cool. Thanks also to Kat Jaffe and Jason Patton at the House of Pod in Denver, Colorado, who take care of all the production, editing, and publishing of this and all future episodes of the show. You can visit houseofpod.org to check out their services and other shows they're producing, including the new Coopcast with my coach, Jason Coop. Again, thanks so much for joining me. I'm super, super excited about the future of this show, and I really hope you guys will join me on the ride. We'll see you next time here at The Well. <laughs>